last time I preached, I had a cold, and I'm now getting over a cold again. So again, I sound like a duck slowly drowning underwater. Sorry. Uh. <laughs> so at the beginning of John's sermon last week, he began by talking about the way he raised his children. He has tried to set up a home where good behavior is rewarded and bad behavior is punished. But John observed that he is sending his children into a world that is often unfair and unjust, where bad behavior is rewarded and good behavior is punished. So the question is, is John a good parent? I'm kidding. (laughs) John's a great parent. I've seen it firsthand. No, there's an unanswered question, though, lingering from last week. Last week in Ecclesiastes, we saw that injustice was everywhere. And our passage continues this week with the theme from last week. We saw that our passage starts, Again I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to us all. Good is not always rewarded. Evil is not always punished, and and oftentimes it's the other way around. You don't always get what you put in. Under the sun, life isn't always fair. So the lingering question is, how do we respond to the unfair realities in our world? In John's sermon last week, we saw one way to respond was to be people of, excuse me, people of faith and not bitterness. We respond to the harsh realities of the world and the seeming randomness of life with trust in the sovereignty of God. We ourselves have received grace upon grace. We ourselves have received not what we deserved, but we've received mercy through Christ. So we, we live with a, a faith and a trust in the sovereignty of God. That's one response to the harsh realities of the world. But there's a second response to the harsh realities of life that Solomon calls us to. There's a second response to the meaninglessness under the sun. It's not just to live in a posture of fear and trusting and believing God. After Solomon has shown us all the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of wisdom, Solomon calls us to a second-pronged approach, which is, wait for it, wisdom. It's remarkable. You would think that after such an exposure of wisdom's shortcomings, Solomon would move to something else. But no, in our reading today, Solomon calls us back to wisdom, even though he knows that wisdom does not always guarantee the results that we hope for. It's a bit like the famous quote from Winston Churchill, democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms of government which have been tried. Winston Churchill knew that democracy had its flaws for sure, but he still defended democracy against the authoritarianism of Nazi Germany. And in the same way, after acknowledging the limits of wisdom, Solomon turns and defends wisdom by showing just how awful foolishness is. Today, we will see the power of wisdom, the failure of folly, and the happy land of a wise king. 
So let's start by looking at the power of wisdom. Turn to chapter, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 in your Bible. Uh, whoever gets to it first can tell us the page. 558. Wow, you guys are on it. Um, we're actually starting in 9, so maybe that messes you up. Uh, so maybe 557. 558, 557. Let's, um, let's look uh, at verses 13 through 16. So Solomon tells this story of a great king coming against a small town and surrounding it and besieging it. And it looks like the town is going to be done for. But there's a poor, wise man who, through his wisdom, is able to outstrategize the king. And this story proves two of Solomon's points that he just made in verse 11. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. Look at this king who's failed. Here's the king who's vanquished by a nobody. But sadly, this, also, this story also proves one of Solomon's points made in verse 11. The wise sometimes go hungry. This poor man doesn't gain economic prosperity because of his military prowess. The town still despises him because he is poor. He's not appreciated for long. This story proves not um, only Solomon's earlier saying, just a few verses prior, but it also seems to be an indictment on the town. How foolish are they to forget this man who was their salvation? They should have given him a place of honor, but instead they forgot him. Solomon notes in verse 18 that wisdom is better than weapons of war. And it's easy in any area of our lives to gravitate towards strength instead of wisdom. But don't do it. Honor the wise in your life. Prioritize wisdom in your life. So while Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes is quick to tell us that wisdom doesn't always get us what we want, as we continue in chapter 10, he shows us that wisdom often brings good outcomes. And chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes starts to sound a lot like the book of Proverbs. So look at verse 2. A wise, man heart, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. It inclines him, brings him to do the right thing, the good thing. In verse 4, we see that calmness, which is a product of wisdom, lays great offense to rest. Have you ever watched a calm person deflate an angry person? It's like watching somebody pop a balloon. I remember once I was playing soccer with my friends, and we didn't know it, but we were playing soccer on a field that we weren't allowed to be playing on. And about halfway through this game, this guy came running to us. He was super angry, super mad. And he said, the cops are on the way. And I remember stopping immediately and calmly asking what the problem was. He had called the cops. Well, I, he said he called the cops. I think he was bluffing. But he had called the cops because we weren't allowed to play on the field. We'd missed a sign. And as I calmly explained what happened, he became less and less agitated. We calmly and quietly picked up our stuff and left and wished him a good day. And this guy, who was so angry at the beginning, wished us a good day, too. Right back. Law enforcement was never called. Calmness deflated the situation. We've seen wisdom is better than weapons of war, that it lays great offenses to rest. But now in verse 10, 
we also see that it helps us succeed. The example is given of sharpening tools. Abraham Lincoln is often quoted as saying, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four hours sharpening my ax. Only in the past few years have I regularly started to sharpen my fillet knife before filleting fish that I catch. Because it feels like when I'm just sitting there, feeling like an idiot, pushing, putting my uh, knife through the stone, that I'm not really getting anything done. There I am in the hot sun, smelling fish guts, um, and I just want to cut this fish open, get the meat off, and go home. But every time I sharpen my knife, I'm less frustrated because even though it takes time to sharpen that knife at the beginning, it's a much less frustrating process and I end up getting more meat because I can cut the meat off better. Wise planning protects you from wearying toil. And we'll discuss that a little bit later, but now let's, let's continue to see the benefits and strength of wisdom in this passage. Look at verse 12. The words of the wise win him favor. Yes, sometimes, as we just saw, you act wisely, you save the town, and everyone forgets you. But it's also true that wise words can win you favor. Remember in the book of Genesis, Joseph had God-given wisdom that in combination with the sovereignty of God meant that he became governor over all of Egypt. He went from prisoner to governor because of his God-given wisdom. So even though we've seen that wisdom doesn't guarantee you good outcomes, it can bring you and often does bring you prosperity, victory, favor, peace, the list goes on. But what does folly bring us? What happens to fools? Let's now look at the failure of folly in this passage. First, in, in the first verse, we see how potent just a little bit of folly is. It's like a fly in an ointment. It ruins the whole thing. A little bit of poo in the pie, you're not going to eat the pie, right? Just a little bit ruins everything. A little bit of folly outweighs wisdom, we see. In our culture, we have phrases like, come on, live a little. Or YOLO, which means you only live once. Uh, <laughs> throw caution to the wind. Treat yourself, right? Sometimes the sentiment behind this phrase isn't necessarily bad. Sometimes those phrases are actually meant to encourage people towards a principle that we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In Ecclesiastes, that's in 7.14. Ecclesiastes 10.7. Go, eat bread and joy, drink wine with a merry heart. So sometimes the sentiment behind those phrases like YOLO can be an exhortation to enjoy the good things of life. But often, that YOLO is foolishness. And foolishness has to be taken seriously. One outburst of anger can cost you your job. One one-night stand can rip apart a family. One fudge number can freeze your bank account. One night of drinking and driving can end someone's life and your own. It turns out the Bible's right. A little folly really does outweigh wisdom and honor. It still happens today. 
Throughout chapter 10, we see the failures of folly. In verse 2, the heart of a fool leads him to make bad choices. And foolishness is obvious. According to verse 3, you can spot a fool just by the way he walks. Sometimes I feel like a fool when I'm walking. But <laughs> apparently, you can, you can spot a fool by the way they walk. In verse 14, you see a, a fool talks too much. He doesn't know how to speak concisely. He starts with confusion and he ends in evil rants. In verse 15, we see that the toil of a fool wearies him. Have you ever been immersed in doing good work? Maybe you go the extra mile for a customer, or you take time to do a job the right way, and your work is pleasing to you and a blessing to, somewhere else, to someone else. You may be tired at the end of doing a good job, but often doing a good job incentivizes you to do an even better job the next time. It feels great to cultivate God's resources that he's given us and turn them into something even better. In his book, Culture Making, the author Andy Crouch talks about how God made us as image bearers of him to take his resources, cultivate them, and turn them into something even greater. So what do humans do? We take eggs that God gave us from chickens, and then we turn them into omelets, right? We take a good thing, and we make it a better thing. We image our creator in the creative act by using his resources rightly. We take stone, and we turn them into houses and sculptures. We were created by a good God to do good work with creativity, and that good work is often energizing. But foolishness and toiling as a fool brings weariness. Have you ever slacked off at work all day? I never have. But <laughs> how do you feel? You feel awful, depleted, uninspired. It's not to say that we shouldn't try to space out intense days and kind of lighter days of work. But if you toil foolishly, if you cut corners, if you don't sharpen your knife before you make those fillet cuts, you will find your work to be exhausting and soul-destroying. Let me say this to everyone, but especially to teens and youth. Learn to enjoy the reward of doing good work with wisdom, even in small tasks. Take two minutes to look at the yard after you mowed it. Enjoy the patch of flower bed or the vegetable garden patch that's free from weeds after you've just weeded the garden. I have this distinct memory of doing a great job making a sandwich for a customer during a summer job I had in college. And it really felt like a privilege, as silly as it sounds, to prepare this midday feast for a customer. And I still remember the look of joy on their faces as I presented it to them. Sit back and thank the Lord for the opportunity to do good work. Remember that work existed before the fall. And while work is cursed as a result of the fall, you were still created, originally intended, to do good work with wisdom. Run from folly. 
Flee from foolishness. Don't even crack a door open to it. You were made to image God and do good work with wisdom. So we've seen the power of wisdom. We've seen the failure of folly. And now I want to turn our attention to verse 17. The happy land of the king. Look at verse 16 and 17. Woe to you when your king is a child. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince, your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. The word happy here has a similar meaning to the kind of blessed are you's in the Mount of Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, if you look in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same kind of blessed are you. And at the time when this was written, this was a warning against unqualified leadership, and it's still a warning today. When a king acts in childish ways and uses his power and wealth for his own personal gain, and if his princes, the people under his authority, at that time, are partying and feasting when they should be working, get ready for hardship. Societies can fall apart quickly when gluttony is glorified. But continuing on, the land is happy. The people are blessed when the king is the son of nobility. The princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. For a king to be a son of the nobility meant that for his whole life, he was preparing to be king. He was preparing himself for the job. And the sons of the king were working hard and celebrating only at the right time. The princes are not feasting to forget about their troubles and get hammered. They're feasting to strengthen themselves to continue to do the good work of servant-hearted governing. And as I read those lines, I couldn't help but think of our prince, the prince of peace. Jesus, in our gospel reading as we saw, is not feasting now. He is waiting. Did you see that in our gospel reading? Jesus says at the last summer, says at the last summer, I have eagerly eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Brothers and sisters, we are blessed. Our prince is waiting to feast at the proper time. Jesus is constantly making intercessions for you. He's not sitting around in the morning in a drunken stupor. When we feel the vanity of life under the sun, remember your prince of peace is abstaining until the kingdom of God comes. You are always on his mind. So we've seen the power of wisdom, that wisdom of the poor man can defeat a mighty army. We've seen wisdom can bring calmness in the midst of an angry ruler. We've seen that wisdom helps you to succeed. We've seen the failure of folly. 
that a little bit of failure can destroy much wisdom and honor, and that the toil of a fool is wearying, while doing good and wise work can move us from strength to strength. And we've seen how blessed we are that King Jesus, the Son of God, is delaying his feasting until the proper time, till the kingdom of God comes in fullness. He is waiting for us. As we close, you may be thinking, okay, I see that folly is not to be messed with and that wisdom is really worth seeking. But how do I seek wisdom? And I just want to give you a couple practicals. First, you ask for wisdom and humility. The book of James actually makes this pretty cut and dry. James in James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask God for wisdom. But James warns that you have to ask in faith. You don't want to be vacillating between trusting God and trusting in the world or your own natural abilities. Don't ask God to give you wisdom if you don't intend to submit every area of your life to him. God is king of the universe, not a pay-by-the-hour consultant. If there is an area of unrepentance in your life, start there. If there's sin in your life that you're just letting fly, start there. If there's ways that you're purposely living against God, start there. Don't ask for wisdom in one area of your life when you're saying to heck with you, God, in another area of your life. Let's look at the way that Solomon asked for wisdom. Now, remember Solomon at the beginning of his life, he called himself a child. He, in humility, knew that he wasn't up for the task. And he didn't have any plan B. He just asked and was dependent upon wisdom from God. Look what he says. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in a place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Do you see Solomon's utter submission? and humility, and asking for wisdom. That's the model. We are not wisdom connoisseurs. Taking a little bit of wisdom that sounds good to us here, and a little bit of wisdom that sounds good to us here. We're desperate children who have no hope but the wisdom of God. What area of your life right now is calling for the wisdom of God? Are you humbled? by the task, good. Ask God for wisdom to do the work he's given you to do. And if there's any ways that you're defying the wisdom of God, start there. Don't squander the wisdom of God in one area of your life and boldly ask for wisdom for another. We're not connoisseurs. We're children of the king. Another practical tip. Seek the wisdom of God in Scripture. I'll, this one's easy. Start with the book of Proverbs. 
If you want to devote yourself to the wisdom of God, devote yourself to the word of God. And finally, seek counsel from trusted advisors. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. So the wisest people I know ask for help from the wisest people they know. <laughs> I'll say that again. The wisest people that I know are always asking for help and counsel from the wisest people they know. Make it a practice to regularly include other people in decisions in your life, big and small. In humility, yes, ask the Lord for help. Seek wisdom in uh, the word of God, but also ask godly brothers and sisters for help. So brothers and sisters, flee from foolishness. Seek wisdom with repentance and humility. And as Paul writes in his doxology at the end of Romans, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ.